0: What's going on everybody? This is Chris Adams with Beyond the Blind You can find us on iTunes at BTBN or uh, at the Podbean app Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, all that type of stuff if you want to reach out And uh, have any suggestions on any call makers to talk to Or uh, just have any questions, feedback, whatever you want to say it is Today I've got Tyler Hall of uh, T-Hall Calls and southern louisiana on the line with us and uh he's just heading back from a fishing trip so we're doing a little late night talk what's going on brother hey chris
1: what's going on man
0: oh you know just getting ready for the week got the kiddos winding down and uh just getting ready to start another one man there
1: you go there you go all this coronavirus craziness um Trying to keep busy, uh, but it looks like it's kind of starting to slow down in our parts. So that's uh, a good thing.
0: Yeah, man. How did it uh, affect your day to day down there?
1: Um, so affected me in a pretty big way. Uh, I've been quarantined for, I guess, a, a good while—about a month to a month and a half, I guess now. Uh, so I've been working from home. You know, I work for my family's company. Uh, whenever I'm not building calls and stuff, so i um, been working from home, and I actually, uh, myself and my girlfriend, ended up actually getting the virus. Uh, she is an ICU nurse over here at what's probably one of the most popular hospitals in the state, and, you know, it's, it's right there in New Orleans, so it's kind of Grand Central Station for the virus, and, you know, just due to the nature of her job, unfortunately, you know, she. Brought it home, but it wasn't bad for us at all. Just a few body aches, headaches, and stuff, but uh, we got over it in about a week. So it worked out for us.
0: That's wild, man. You were officially the first person I know that actually had it then. <laughs>
1: well, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, <laughs> but uh, it, it you know it, it wasn't bad. Um, it's definitely a real thing, that's for sure. Um, you know, with her job and, and listening to hear kind of what. Her experience has been and what she's dealt with and all, uh, I, I definitely can, can say it is it is real. Um, it affects everybody differently, but luckily it seems like it's dying down. So
0: Yeah, yeah, and luckily, you know, most of the people that we're friends with on Facebook, it's kind of like, uh, you know, your girlfriend being the ICU nurse, and then Seth Fields is pretty much telling everybody, you know, that's saying it's all made up and nonsense. I've seen him say a hundred times, he's like, no, it's actually... It's actually real, so... Yeah, yeah, no,
1: Seth, uh, you know, Seth and Anna, I believe, uh, I think it's his fiance now, um, I think they're both nurses, but yeah, Seth, Seth will know and, and he'll tell you, but um, no, but luckily it did not affect my respiratory system, so uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll be able to continue building coals. So that
0: works out. Yeah, man. That's pretty crazy. I was actually down on bourbon street. We were, we had a vacation plan for like six months and we were, uh, one of the crazy people that were on there The we left at like two or three in the afternoon on the day that they shut it down at like 8 PM <laughs> and cleared the streets.
1: Oh, man. Yeah, it's, it's really funny because, um, you know, as you experienced, I mean, Bourbon Street and the French Quarter, it's
0: it's craziness all, all the time. Yeah, no seven, matter what day, three, man.
1: You know, 365. And so whenever they cleared it, uh, they had a, a few local photographers that went out there and they took pictures of the French Quarter and Bourbon Street after there's no people. You know, it's clean and it's beautiful you know it it actually is really really cool looking so it was neat to see that um you know kind of see some of the history and the architecture and and just you know it's just a very very old area and see what it looks like without you know thousands of people there it's really cool so um yeah you just just
0: missed it yeah man i uh i love it down there you know being living an hour and a half two hours away from there we were down there pretty frequently but uh it was My girlfriend had never been, and uh, that was her first time down there, and it was right before everything went crazy. It was kind of like, there was 2,000 cases in America when we left from Missouri, and we were kind of like, eh, I don't know if we should go or not. And then by the time we got down, like, by the time we left, I think there was like 12,000 cases. I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, this is craziness. We should probably get out of here before the state locks down. But uh, we were on... The first second that we got on Bourbon Street, she's like, I cannot believe that there are this many people down here. It was like Thursday at 2 in the afternoon, and it was, you know, just like freaking the French Quarter is, always busy. I was like, this is every day down here. You should be down here one of the yep. big events.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. It, um, I mean, we had the national championship, you uh, know, as you know, down there, and it was just absolutely crazy uh you know for that um you know just things like that to mardi gras you know you name it i mean it's um it gets pretty nuts but i tend to i mean i'll, I'll go down there for a few things every now and again and and everything but you know it just it gets to be where, where you can't breathe you know and it's oh yeah, yeah i mean i mean literally if between the summertime you go down there for some of the events they have between the heat and the people and i mean feel like you can't ever move you know it's not all uh you know it can really turn a a fun day into a a not so fun day but that's why we go fishing and and stick to doing that kind of stuff
0: (laughs) (laughs) right yeah it's definitely a, a weekend trip not a not a live down there every day type thing yeah yep so let's get into uh kind of how you started building calls and man i remember your like first starting to see your calls back in 2014 ish 2015 maybe yeah um
1: so kind of i guess the timeline for me with that worked out like this um i grew up kind of blowing hate D R 85 and then duck commander kind of started to get more popular on the outdoor channel started blowing those and then a buddy was like hey you should check out max prairie wings um that never heard of it I, I was just starting to to really blow duck calls and start really duck hunting i guess my about my freshman year of high school and then I saw all these you know R T and echo and uh just you know a lot of those you know higher end 140 dollar you know so calls and um so I typed in orangey on YouTube, and uh, it was John Stevens. I think it was, like, maybe his 1998 World Championship, all three rounds. I think that, that might have been the year. I could be wrong. Um, but I listened to him blow that Main Street routine, and I thought that was the coolest thing on the planet, hearing that. And I don't know why. I just wanted to do it. So <laughs> I uh, went to my local Cabela's and bought a Echo Diamondwood Polycarb Double Reed. And the second I got in my truck, I think I was 16. The second I got in my truck, I tried to blow a Main Street hail call. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't really remember what it sounded like, but I just did it, and I thought it sounded good. And I just was like, "This is the greatest thing on the planet." So then I, I you know, YouTube started watching YouTube videos of echoes calls, and you know, there's just so much stuff that like Freddie King put out. Um, you know, with all the Echo boys in the woods and those guys hunting and everything. And I just kind of fell in love with that kind of, you know, the Arkansas J-Frame duck call and that kind of, you know, style of calling. And started watching uh, just videos every single day. And um, at that point, it was kind of like, you know what, Echo's, that, that's kind of the call company I want to support. Um, and then so all through high school, that's what I blew and then my freshman year of college, I kind of started getting really interested in wanting to join like the outdoor scene in regards to like you know being uh, affiliating myself and being like with a pro staff. So um, I sent in a field staff application to Echo Duck Calls and Tyler Brashears, who's uh, you know I don't know if he if he still blows contests or not. Um, i had heard that he had ended up moving out of Arkansas and doesn't work for echo anymore, but he kind of was in charge of that. And I wrote about a, a half of a book uh, in my application email. Cause I just, I just wanted to be a, a part of the company and he ended up getting it. And, you know, we kind of made friends and he invited me up to the shop at, uh, to the echo shop to come hang out for the week and the duck hunt. some. and so that was really, really cool. Uh, and that was my first time also ever going up to worlds was that week. Um, So I got to do that and really fell in love with with Duck Calls there. And then the next summer, he invited me back. And that that week, I pretty much worked in the shop the whole entire week that I was there with Mr. Rick and uh, with, like, Jonathan Morton and and Shane Teach, just, like, all those guys. And the last day I was there, I was like, hey, you know, can I – you know, by any chance turn a duck call, you know, just a, a duck call barrel. And they're like, yeah. So they actually, you know, they, they chucked a I think it was a piece of maple or something up on the, you know, to a mandrel. And the, you know, that was really the only, you know, lathe that they had in there at the time. Um, it was an old, old lathe. And this kind of gave me a little bit of guidance, let me go to town. And I had a blast with it. And I was like, oh, this is this isn't a ton of fun. I want to do this one day. And then I guess that was in May of, that would have been, shoot, I guess that was May 2013. A year goes by and I just out of nowhere told my mom, I was like, hey, I'm gonna take a whole bunch of money out of my bank account and I'm gonna start making duck calls. And my mom was like, uh, all right, you know, sure. <laughs> yeah, go for and it. And so I bought everything that I thought that I needed And, um, you know, just like a Harbor Freight lathe, a super cheap Ryobi bandsaw, a Harbor Freight drill press. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Um, And then just kind of started tinkering around with stuff. And it was funny because I remember my mom had asked me, well, how long do you think it's going to take you to, to start making money with this? Because I had assured her that I could figure this out and could make money from it.
0: <laughs> and um, That's a businesswoman right there.
1: <laughs> right.
2: And she said, uh, well, how long do you think it'll take? And I was like, oh, I think I can make a duck call in three weeks.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> and, um, You know, three weeks goes by and... I think at that point, all I was turning... I I ordered a bunch of stuff off of Woodcraft, like some... It was like Jatoba. I mean, it was some crazy... Just like the cheapest turning blocks I could find. I was just turning barrels. Um, And then I thought, well, man, I need to, you know, figure out this whole insert situation because at that time, like Duck Home Video Showcase and... I think it was like Duck Call Exchange and a few of these other really popular Duck Call, you know, buy, sell, trade, and, and kind of the whole Facebook Duck Call era of things kind of kicked off. And everybody was saying, oh, you know, it was a super big deal to make sure you had your own custom insert, which I wanted to do, um, but I just didn't really know, you know, how to do it, of course, or, or even where to get started. Um, and so it's funny because I remember. I called up at Echo and asked for Mr. Rick, and I said, hey, um, Mr. Rick, you know, kinda of started building duck calls and stuff. Is there any, you know, any clue or any advice you can give me and, you know, any of the stuff, cause I wanna, you know, start doing that. And he was like, yeah, sure. And, and he kinda helped me out with a few things here and there. And then he said, uh, right before I got through it, he goes, well, you know, are you gonna uh, need some inserts? As in, do I need some Echo inserts to you know, stuff them in the barrels I had? And I said, "No, sir, I'm going to make my own uh, my own insert." And he just was like, "Okay, well, <laughs> you know, that's really difficult."
0: And uh, <laughs> yeah, and then I, I just kind of started taking around. I bought a public jig from
1: Pintail Waterfowl. It already had like a slope on it, you know, cutting it. And then um, somebody I definitely got to give a, a huge shout out to is Sir Colby Leonard. Um, with Timber Boss calls because I've kind of seen his stuff and, and it was really, really cool, man. I had kind of messaged him through Messenger and he, you know, him and I think it was his grandfather had started, you know, really kind of give me some guidance in regards to just like what minerals I need to get and, you know, just like popular insert links and, and just like little things here and there. And um, so I did that and let's see, kind of got some sound out of some calls with those public jigs, and then um, I think I might have, you know, posted up on Facebook or something and just said, you know, hey, can somebody give me some pointers in regards to, you know, how I can, you know, build an insert. Somebody said, oh, well, you should contact Josh Reed. You know, he's, you know, kind of getting started, and he's a real good guy. So I contacted him, and uh, he basically just, you know, didn't really tell me much of anything other than throw away that public jig you got and just buy a flat jig <laughs> and do it from scratch and you just got to figure it out yourself and I was like okay <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> right I think that's the number one thing <laughs> I tell new people that ask me questions is get a flat jig
1: yeah and so that's what I did so I kept my public jig but ended up getting a flat uh you know flat jig from web put custom calls and um Just uh, started working at it from, I guess that would have been, I don't know, um, probably July-ish. I started building calls in May of 2014. July is whenever I got my public jig. And then late September, early October was whenever I built my first, you know, the insert and tone board that my, or really it was a tone board that my jig, you know, currently is, is modeled off. Um, and so I just, um, I hit it. It was kind of perfect. And at the time, you know, I was so excited because it was, you know, exactly what I've been kind of searching for and working towards. So I ran outside. I blew, a, you know, a, a quick little uh, routine and, and posted on Duck Call Video Showcase and then just kind of got bombarded with all these messages of people wanting them. And I didn't know what to think or even, the, you know, to do. I just thought it was so cool that, you know, people would want, a duck call that I'd made, um, and I guess just kind of going to the Echo Shop and seeing the the interactions there, you know, that with people that would come in, and just just the whole thing. I just thought it would have been the, one of the coolest things on the planet to be able to make a duck call and actually sell it, and people actually you know are going to use it to hunt with. And so um, Colby uh, Leonard had put me in touch with the guy that had done some of his CNC work, and I didn't even really know what I had. So I was like, well. You know what you know i, I kind of had talked to colby about it and and some other people and i was like i might just do like a cnc run of calls you know i'm gonna of course get a jig made and i just want to sell calls just so people put it in people's hands and actually see what they think about it and um did a run of calls did like hedge bocote and coca bola which at that time i didn't even know about wood shrinking so i bought a bunch of coca bola from woodcraft it was all wet. It had them all cnc CNC'd. It was all wet. I'm sure it was like a 20, 20 to 25% moisture oh, content.
0: <laughs> and I had, I think, I think I had
1: like 15 made and 10 of them shrunk. I couldn't use the barrels. Like, they shrunk so much that so you couldn't even put an insert in them. Oh. Um, yeah, and at that time, I, I was selling like Hedge Calls, Hedge Bucote, and, and the of Coca Bull. I think I sold saw them, saw, saw them all about for... 25 to $30 a piece because I didn't think that what I had was, was worth anything. Um, and it kind of, I guess it kind of turns out that it did. And, you know, I kind of went backwards, I guess, in really how people would recommend that you go about the whole duck call thing. I think a, a lot of guys, and, and I would definitely recommend that, you know, people of course get a flat jig, figure out their tone board, you know, really learn how to blow a duck call really well just in general um, to give them, you know, a really good understanding of really air pressure presentation and just kind of the different things that you need to do to get a call to respond the way you need to. Um, and then learn only hand turn your calls. I went backwards and I would just kept, I was like, well, people are wanting these things and I want people to, to blow them and stuff, so I'm just going to do some CNC drones. So, I did that, I think, more or less at the beginning, um, you know, for a little while, and then started transitioning over just to doing hand turn stuff, and for the most part, right now, that's all i do is hand turn stuff, but um, a lot of people ask. It's, it's cool that you, you know, you kind of give us a platform to kind of tell people about where we get started, you know, from, and, and kind of how things culminate, because it's a pre- it's, it's pretty cool, and I think it's really, really interesting to hear everybody's, you know, because it's not a, you know, I mean, I think probably more or less now it is something where you can just get
0: started out of nowhere because everybody's doing it now. Right. But um, I guess, you know, I don't want to say whenever I got started nobody was doing it because, you know, that's definitely not the case. Um, well, I think I – I, uh, I don't want to cut off your thought. But no, I think ahead. the difference between um, – you had all those guys like – You know, Brad and, you know, Mike and Bobby and Ron at RM. All the THO guys that are all... Because me and you are about the same age. And then I've talked to Michael. We're all about the same age. Kind of started about the same time. Those guys all had their own little niche group on THO. And then when DCE really kicked off and then Call Nuts kicked off, that's when, like, a new group of guys, like, kicked up. And then there's that weird in-between where there wasn't, like, a lot of guys weren't getting onto forums. Like, I remember getting onto forums and killing a lot of time, but I was, I was pretty much off of most forums, like, 2011, 2012. So you have that weird time frame where there wasn't, like, all the public information. Like, anybody can get on Call nets now and get the best guys in the world giving them answers within 15 minutes. But yeah. eight years ago, that wasn't a thing
1: yeah absolutely i mean i remember whenever i first kind of got started i didn't i you know I, I didn't really know anything and and i could sit here and list off a, a number you know a number of guys i mean like aaron Wingert for sure uh aaron winger was
0: awesome um he's the finish and, master you, yeah i mean aaron
1: um i didn't know anything about CA finishes aaron spent time with me over the phone talking to me about that um Gosh, Aaron, you know, Josh Razio, of course. I mean, um, him just telling me in general, just, hey, get, you know, get a flat jig. I mean, that was a huge piece of advice, which it wasn't anything direct. You know, he wouldn't, and, and I'm thankful for it. You know, he didn't give me any anything about, wait, hey, well, you know, you should, you know, drill this depth or anything like that. But Josh, you know, Aaron, of course, Kobe Leonard, the terror boss. Um, but I mean, for the most part, it's kind of, I just kind of just figured it out, you know. There weren't any videos on YouTube about building calls really at all, um, and so it's you, you definitely just kind of have to learn um, and, and watch a lot of YouTube videos about wood turning and, and that sort of stuff. Um, I, but yeah, a lot of trial and error.
0: <laughs> Man, I really enjoy talking to you know you different guys and hearing the guys that come out and have almost a strategy. And then you have guys like you, like, you know, you were just kind of trying to figure it out and you're like, hey, this is what I'm doing because people like the CNC run. Well, people want my calls. I'm going to try to do this and that. And then you have guys like Josh. Josh was because your story is very similar to mine. I've never done CNCs, but it was like, hey, I was just trying to kick out calls to get them into people's hands. But then you have guys that are like Josh, who he had, I've listened to his story where he was talking about how he wanted guys to have some of his calls. But then as soon as he figured out that he had something, he really, really limited it to keep it almost rare. I don't know that it, it was on purpose. Like, I don't want to ever, you know, speak for somebody else. But he made his stuff sexy. Um, the You know, yeah. he made his stuff rare and sexy. And he's, he doesn't spend all day long in the shop. Maybe he does. But, you know, he keeps it real limited. His books are always closed type of thing. Kind of the same thing Ron does with RM. Keeps everything yeah. super, super limited. So that way that that drive and everybody wants it because they can't have it type thing. And it's funny because Channing did very similar. He knew what he wanted. He went out and got the best material he could get, the most rare blanks he could get. So that way, you know, he was giving somebody something that... Uh, you know, he could charge that better price for, set his market at, where me, man, I was doing anything back in the day to get my calls in guys' hands.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of how, how I was, um, you know, kind of a similar approach. For me, the thing that drove me the most and that excited me the most was never, it honestly was never a money thing whatsoever because i mean like i said i mean whenever i first got started on calls i didn't think i just didn't think that they were really worth a damn until i guess i started to realize they kind of were i mean i knew that i liked it but i was like i don't you know i don't feel comfortable with charging anybody any amount of money so really i was just like as long as they can kind of cover my material costs and you know keep it going you know that's that's fine um but the coolest thing, I think, for me was, uh, and if he ends up listening to this, it'd be really, really cool. But whenever Duck Call Video Showcase kind of got started, um, I think it would have been Duck Call Video Showcase, maybe Call Nuts. Call Nuts was a little later. But I um, ended up having this guy, this customer's name was Rick Jerk. And me and him kind of built a relationship and you know i had done my first run of acrylic calls and so he had ordered a uh it was an ivory barrel with like a coca bola insert i think i'm pretty sure that's what it was anyways he had ordered that call and another call for his son and um i messaged him said hey man both calls are ready so on and so forth and he ended up letting me know he was like hey he's like uh oh, i hope this is okay you know if not i understand uh but his wife ended up uh being diagnosed with cancer and he was concerned you know with you know money of course and stuff because a diagnosis like that with anybody i mean you're gonna kind of that that's your main focus
0: yeah it puts Um, things in perspective right and so uh and so of course he told
1: me that and my heart you know just kind of sank and Realizing that, and so I was like, you know what, kind of screw it. He'd already given me his address, and so I just sent him both of the calls, and just kind of figured, like, you know what, hearing something like that, you know, these duck calls aren't going to change anything. But you know what, I mean, he's had it on order for a while. I'm going to send it to him, and then the you know he contacted me back and for his son that had meant more than anything you know he was said at the time to his son just because of where his son was at and all and we ended up being you know becoming kind of really good friends to that and it stayed in touch and went, now we haven't touched base in a while but yeah. i guess kind of through that and i remember telling my mom about it and i was like you know he told me that this like really made a big difference in you know his son's life at the time just getting this duck call and it kind of clicked in my head that there's probably something more to duck calls than just, you know, selling duck calls to people that, you know, want to hunt with them. And that's 100% the case. I think you know that. I think any of the guys that are selling duck calls right now and, and or excuse me, really just, you know, building and, and selling calls and having that interaction with people that you don't even know that end up becoming really close friends in that how something is Simple as a you know, a piece of wood that makes a noise can have an effect on people in, in one shape or another is really, really cool. And so is like experiences like that and relationships I developed with people just made me, you know. I guess that was really why I loved doing it. I just, you know, loved the whole interaction with people and that whole process and stuff, so
0: that's beautiful. Very, very man. cool. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's that is one of my favorite things because that's something I've told people time and time again, not necessarily that, but uh people, you know, talking about prices and this and that. I'm like, man, if it, it's gonna be my first call, I want this. I was like, if it's gonna be your first call, you can go get a thirty dollar call to loan on. Like, I'm not trying to build you, you know, a specific call just to learn I want something that you can hunt and make memories with, pass it down. And just, I want, like, you know, we all have that thing, like that hammer that your grandpa used for 50 years that just right. holds, it means so much more than driving a nail with.
1: Absolutely. No, I mean, it, it, it com- you're, I mean, you're completely right. It does. Um, you know, that's, that's the, that's the cool stuff. I think, um, you know, at least now, you know, and, and for, I'll be honest, like for a while, I kind of just got to a point to where it was really, I guess, about a year, a year ago, you know, a year and a half ago or so, where I just kind of, I kind of just got burnt out with things. Um, because I just, you know, I had, I would have a number of people who were wanting calls built, but I was also working, you know, a full time job and stuff, working eight to five. I mean, which look, there's, The majority of the guys that build calls do the exact same thing um but just for me and my circumstances with work you know i got about an hour commute to work an hour commute home and so by the time i would get home you know it's just my motivation for wanting to build calls which you know if i'm gonna build a duck call i want to be able to build it whenever I want to build it, and I'm excited about building it, and I can devote all my time, energy, and focus to it. Um, And so I just didn't like the idea, you know, and and just kind of got burnt out on, you know, the idea of just having all these orders kind of just stacked up one after another, and, you know, not that they weren't important because, of course, they're, you know, they're important, but it's really just a matter of, and I think you know what I'm saying when I say this is, like, I would rather have... Two, to, you know, maybe two to three calls on order that are unique, um, one of a kind. They're going to mean something. Then have to go crank out, you know, ten or you know, twelve heads or Coca-Cola calls or just just something that's just kind of straightforward. Because
0: I don't want it to feel like a job. Yep. Um,
1: I want it to feel like something that I love. That you know what? I also am able to make some money from it um and that's kind of what is fun and so that's really i guess why now everything that i'm doing for the most part um is all hand you know is going to be hand-turned stuff um and so you know now i'm trying to work on things which i mean the whole virus thing kind of screwed that up and then also I was, you know i went to um the real foot last year and just gosh that i mean that was one of the coolest experiences we can kind of get into that and i guess in a minute but um now i'm at the point where i'm just like you know what uh you know i have kind of a planner and it's like you know what one day i'm gonna you know round and drill these barrels that's what i'm doing on monday and that's the only thing i'm gonna do and then on tuesday i'm gonna work on these a little bit more and then you know so on and so forth and let it be more of a progressive thing rather than it being a Oh my gosh! I got to go in there on a Monday after work and feel like I've got you know a second job waiting for me whenever I get
0: home. So yeah, um, you should be excited when you get something and want to do it. And I, uh, I totally relate, man. It was uh, the end of seventeen, all the way up until last year, midway through the year, I didn't touch a call. I sold every piece of equipment that I had. I was pretty much just done with it. Um, me and uh, Meredith would talk every now and then, and I had even. He'd try to get me to come down to his house a few times just to turn a call, just to get that itch. And uh, it took until last year, midway through the year, where I was like, man, I kind of want to build a call again. And then like a week later, I just went out and rebought everything. But (laughs) it started turning calls, and now I'm to the point where, you know, it's like I love it again, and I'm excited to do it. But if something else comes up, you know, the girlfriend wants to do something, the kids are wanting to do something, my shop is in my garage. So if the kids come out to the garage and get their bikes and they say, hey, let's go do this, I just turn off the lathe. All right, yeah, let's go do this. And, you know, it doesn't matter to me. I I tell people that want to put in orders for me that I am the absolute slowest order, (laughs) turner, fulfiller, because I don't let it get in the way of life. And I want to be excited about doing it. So if that means they have to wait an extra day for me to finish, you know, I have a a tone board that's halfway down to a tenon right now that I'm still working on. I think it's been on my lathe for since Thursday. I haven't even touched it, and it's yeah. still sitting there. And I'll get to it when I get to it. But uh, it's it's <clears throat> not anybody's specific order, so they're not waiting on me. But you know, right. I, I just don't rush yeah. stuff. It's yeah, well, I don't want to get burnt I mean, out again.
1: And that's you know. Um, One thing I definitely, definitely recognize because, you know, so I used to live over at my mom's house in Slidell. um, And then I moved uh, over here really kind of once I got done with college and stuff. I moved over here to to where we live at in Mandeville. And so my shop was not my mom's and I had a big, I I don't want to say it was a big shop, but I mean, it was, it was plenty of room um that i need in, in our back you know back garage i put a divider wall up and stuff and had that in there because it was air conditioned and it was it was nice i mean it just, it <laughs> it was just felt like a shop and it was enjoyable for me to go in there well then i moved out of that shop because whenever i moved to mandeville that's you know about 40 minutes and you know around slidell so for a while and, that, and this is really part of what kind of burnt me out on it i would you know get off of work at 5, so I commute an hour to work, work 8 to 5, then I would commute an hour to Slido, and then work in the shop from, you know, about 6, 6.30 at night, till 10, 11, 12 at night, some nights, and then commute another hour back to Mandeville to where I lived over here, and um, that's a long day, and it's not fun you know and, yeah and it's just it's just not very ideal so i'd go do that you know about two two nights a week uh you know or so and um sounds like okay i can't do this when so i moved the shop to our warehouse uh to you know to my family's business in the back which that was great because you know what at lunch i was that's exactly where I wanted to be and I was super excited about it because I just you know I'd always find myself in the middle of the day be like oh man I wish I could go work on this you know I wish I could do that and now I could and that was awesome well number one <laughs> I found that I'd, I'd start focusing thinking about too much about duck calls and, and not about work <laughs> um, which I, I'd still get my work stuff done but you know so that wasn't necessarily the greatest thing to have it there but the other thing was it was in the warehouse
0: not warehouse in summertime i mean you know i had a, a fan blowing on me but it was just uh, hot air no and, people that have never uh, lived south of i-10 have no idea
1: yeah i mean it's it i mean it's
0: it's brutal three months uh, out of the year it's unlivable but the rest of the year yes. it's amazing oh and i left yep. i left in 2010 to come back to missouri for christmas and i hadn't been home in a year and uh i flew out of mobile and got and it was like 72 two days before christmas i got off the plane it was 16 here and i was yeah. like i don't even own a coat anymore what the heck is this
1: yeah yeah and so so it was miserable there and um then i ended up moving uh in mandeville got a, a a little bit better place um about about 300 yards down the street from where i was living and um Got in here, has been great, and now the shop's in my little mini-garage, but I have no air conditioning in there. So I'm kind of back to square one Um, right now. I just have a hot fan blowing on me, and it was great all through the spring. Yeah. And now that it's getting hotter, now it's starting to be, you know, not very fun. So given that, I think that you'll agree – you know, because we're me and you know my girlfriend right now. We're gonna you know, have future plans and all. I'm sure there's an engagement coming up at, you know, <laughs> at some point. I don't wanna right. When, but I'm sure
2: it's coming. <laughs> and
1: um, you know, so we have that. And then we're talking about you know the idea of building the house. Um, now, with that, something I told her, I was like, I absolutely you know, if we're going to do it, I want to find, you know, if we can, a, you know, about an acre lot uh, or even bigger than that, if it's possible. And I was like, I have to have a shop. And so I know that given those plans, I'm going to build myself a, you know, a nice wood shop, you know, workshop work. So I really would like to get into doing some furniture and, and that sort of stuff as well. But, a space where it's your air conditioned, full dust collection system, just the so, just the works and, and I wanna make it look and, and feel like a duck call shop. Um, just you know, no different than you've seen pictures of John Stevens, you know, shop that, that they had at Colapalooza and, and we're working in them there. I think that from a creativity standpoint in an atmosphere, it is a night and day difference I think, working in a shop like that. As opposed to
0: working in your, you know, in your garage. Oh or yeah. In a,
1: in a shed or you know where it's it's uncomfortable and you know and it, and it's you know and, or whatever it could be and I think that you know they like you know look I, I don't want to sound like a you know like oh man you know tower holes wimp because it doesn't work in want to work in the heat I mean
0: it's I just, just a guess. different environment. <laughs> yeah you know it's it's it it is and it's a different
1: creative space um and it's just then that's how i would feel at my mom's shop whenever i was working in there uh you know the the shop at her house is i'd walk into that shop and i'd you know flip on the air conditioner turn on the radio and you know um just kind of sit there and have pictures everywhere and and i'd be like this is my space
0: well and and it can be it can be a hang too i mean look at uh Aaron, I don't know if you follow uh, Winger. He has that yearly get-together. And then, um, like, Josh's shop. I mean, look what he turned into that call night thing from just a a hangout at his shop every now and then. And then it grew into that monster that he had for a while. Yeah, I
1: mean, absolutely. I mean, there's... I, I think, you know, I am very, very... I'm a very passionate person about you know whenever it comes to duck hunting and the whole camaraderie aspect of it you know I'm big into photography um you know and just capturing moments and and making memories of people and um you know uh, my future shop you know that I'm I'm planning on wanting to build you know is I want it to be a place especially for a lot of local guys because the duck hole scene down here is non-existent I mean it's completely non-existent um for the, you know for the most part i would say and i kind of want to be able to have a place where people can walk in there and it's that i want them to walk in there and them to feel like this is a adult like this is a duck call shop like this is where i go to get one of the tools that i use whenever i go hunt every day um you know, rather than it being like, a, oh, hey, I need to go to Academy Sports and, and go get a, you know, just go grab a duck call um, or just order something offline. Um, I think that whole kind of interaction and having a, a set place for that's important. So I'm looking forward to that in the future for sure.
0: Oh, I think that that's super cool, man. And, uh, you know, that concept, because that's, you know, I, I live in the garage. I do it wherever I I'm allowed to do it at and <laughs> keep as much dust off of stuff as I'm allowed to do it. But, yeah, that that atmosphere, because I had people all the time, and it's the same way in Springfield. There is no – in southwest Missouri, there's no duck call shops. No, It's not like Arkansas. It's not like Kansas City where, like, Bobby Hayes has that big shop, and he's building out a brand new one. But people were always at Bobby's shop hanging out and uh Uh. people are always at echo i mean when i was down there you had everybody just coming through the door hanging out and that hang atmosphere duck duck hunting is a uh it's a team sport man every nobody does it by themselves unless you just have nobody else to go with or maybe every now and then you want some peace and quiet but it's a team sport the blind camaraderie is that thing and to have that available at your shop or somebody can come over and take pictures or you can hang out and you know, drink coffee or a beer, or whatever you choose, and maybe talk about calls and kick ideas back with different call makers. Because if you look at um like Waylon and Meredith and Alan, they all have that hang going on because it's everybody's in that same area and they all have shops that they can do that in. Oh, absolutely! um
1: You know, I mean that's that's a cool thing. I mean that's that's kind of what it's all about. Um, That was kind of really one of the things that I realized and i would mentioned Realfoot. And it was just such a huge, huge eye-opener for me. It made me realize a lot of things. um, I think about, I guess if you want to say about myself, uh, but I guess really about the community that I was involved with um, because, you know, I've never been to Realfoot before. I've been to NWTF, but mostly it's, you know, because I'm a – you know, affiliated with, with Higdon Decoys and and those guys over there. And so, if I'm at NWTF, I'm typically working a booth and, you know, doing that sort of stuff. And, you know, man, we, you know, I, I really wanted to go to Real Foot. I didn't really know too much about it or who to stay with. I ended up talking to Kent, you know, talking to Kent Eason. He was like, oh, I'm staying, you know, over there with, with, you know, Rob Zettermeister, you ought to get in touch with him. I'd never met Rob before, talked to, to him, and, and he was you know, nice enough pretty much just to, to give me a spot, and I ended up you know, crashing on the couch from there. So it was, it was me, Ernie Ross, Rob Zettermeister, Ken Eason, um, Stephen Handy, Rusty Hen was there, my Uncle Rusty, which there's <laughs> the story behind that, and then apparently Ken's my dad. <laughs> um,
0: Dude, that is a lineup.
1: And, um, and so that's what I stayed with. And so getting over there and stuff and and spending, I think it was what, you know, two or three days, I think I spent over there real quick and just getting to meet and, you know, like for instance, I had seen Waylon's calls, his, I mean, absolutely gorgeous, beautiful nets. Um, the guy is an absolute craftsman and he's just awesome, but I've seen Waylon's stuff. Um, guys like joe purcell never met joe purcell in my life just just like a number of these people i've never met but felt like i somewhat knew because of <laughs> that whole social, social media me. thing well, so i remember we were we were hanging out um outside one of the cabins and um waylon came walking up or something and uh it was kind of one of those things you know how like where you're you're meeting so many people at one time you don't remember everybody's names yes and so it was one of those things and we started like talking and stuff and uh it didn't even click in my head until wayland went to his his truck or whatever and pulled one of his nets out and i was like who builds nets you know right it clicked and i was like Wait a second. Like, are you wailing like Tom Thomason? He's like, Yeah. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. And I was like, Dude, you know, and sat there and talked to him and just, and it was like that the whole weekend. Just so many people that I saw online and, you know, listened to them blowing a call or seeing their posts and getting to meet them. And then just seeing people like, for instance, Ken Eason. Like, never met Kent in my life. Me and Mr. Kent, you know, talked on the phone a good, you know, a fair amount, you know, here and there. But just pick up, like, like you know, like, it, you've been friends forever. Brad, same, same thing with Brad, same thing. Never met Rusty in my life before. Rusty just, just clicked. And I guess you just kind of, it's like you have a, a bunch of really, really good friends that you never see uh you know but maybe like once or so a year and for me it was like these are people i've never met but felt like i've been friends with them my whole entire life and so uh so it's such a cool thing man um if anybody listening to this if you've never been to Real Foot lake set some time aside and go that it is
0: that what first weekend october right
1: yeah yeah i think so and it's it's nothing special it's it's
0: you know. Well, real foot lake, food. real foot lake is a special place. Just not at yeah, that no, time. no, real foot lake <laughs> is is you no know, is a special place. I'm saying the event itself is there's nothing
1: fancy about it. It's literally it's a giant get together of all of the some of the best you know call makers and you know on the planet you know and also you know wood you know blank and wood providers and stuff. And it's just a big hangout. It's just a lot of drinking beer <laughs> and <laughs> eating a lot of good food, and one of the most historical waterfowl in the place, you know, spots in the country. And it just—you can't beat it. It's just—it's awesome, you know. So it was super, super cool doing that. And I cannot—I can't wait to go. I was upset I couldn't go to Calipalusa, but uh, you know, I—I I can't wait to do that kind of stuff. And that's—that whole experience and doing that kind of rung my bell and made me realize how good I had it in regards to me being able to make duck calls and people actually wanting them. And just being, involved I guess, involved in all that, you know, it is a huge bell ringer.
0: Yeah, man. And it, it's really funny you're talking about all the friends with you're with online and never met them. You posted one, and I'll, I'll remember this forever because it totally... It totally uh, signifies exactly what you're talking about and how I think a lot of people have felt it was a a gif a while back and it was like when you know somebody online or your friends online but you've never met in person and it's that little kid that's side-eyeing you know what I'm talking about that gif you posted that a couple years ago and I thought that was the funniest thing all so much so that I remember it out of the thousands of posts I've ever seen Because it's so true, (laughs) you're like I'm pretty sure I know you, but we've never talked in person. Yeah, just it's so funny. Yeah.
1: Um, Well, how, man? You know, I've sat here and talked a ton, but I'm curious. So, how did you get started building calls?
0: It was totally by no planning. um, I. Was going out and I uh, filmed a couple of hunting TV shows We had a local show here for a couple of years with me and my buddies So I was working full-time. I had kids that were just little at the time and uh, I was doing this hunting show So I was getting up at three or four in the morning. We were going out hunting. I was coming home sorting through all the film trying to you know label everything so that way i could edit it on the weekend and get ready for an episode and i was doing that until 2 30 and i would head into work at 3 and i would get off work at 3 or at 11 p.m go home go to bed sleep for a couple hours and get back and do the whole cycle over and um we were doing that for a couple years really hard and heavy And I got so burnt out and done with that. The drama and everything affiliated with it. I was just done. So we finished up our last season with snow goose. And uh, I got done snow goose hunting. And I had already decided that I was done. I wasn't doing it anymore. So I wasn't going to film all the turkey hunting and all that kind of stuff. So I was just bored. (laughs) You know, when you're going 150 miles an hour for so long. And then you just hit the brakes. You just kind of have that that crash so I was bored and um, looking for something to do I had started buying calls here and there when uh, DCE was just really blowing up and call nuts had just started I, I started two or three months after call nuts and uh, I was like man I can't afford to keep buying all this stuff you know I got young kids working a regular job and uh, so I was like I'm just gonna start making my own calls Because I want all this, I want a call made out of this, I want a call made out of that, and I can't afford it, so I'm just going to go out and do it myself. So I went out, bought a lathe, bought everything that I thought I needed, kind of like what you said, and uh, I was tearing up wood within two or three days of deciding that I was even going to do it, and uh, yeah, man, a lot of wasted time and burnt up wood sense, that's kind of where I (laughs) came from.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's... In, in a way, like you said, kind of, kind of how I was. Um, you know, it's, it's funny always to kind of hear everybody's reasoning and, and why they, you know, they get into it and, and why they do it and stuff.
0: Um, you know, I, I would say that guys like
1: you and I are relatively kind of new to the new to the scene uh, of things in comparison to a lot of other guys. Like just like you mentioned, like the THO forum, which I ended up becoming a you know. A member on there like shortly after I, I really got started building calls and stuff and um you know so it's I don't know you know I think it's it's just kind of like the the way that it, it, it is it's always interesting because now I'm sure like as of right now I mean there's probably more people making duck calls and trying to sell them right now than there ever has been in history.
0: I would guarantee um, you that
1: because you can go on YouTube now and watch video after video of people building calls um, you know and kind of showing that and you know and and then we have social media too uh, which makes it you know huge Um, and really the the biggest the most important thing I think is branding and marketing Um, you know kind of in general you know you want to transition to that but I mean you had mentioned uh, like kind of how you know Josh and stuff, and, you know, kind of how he had marketed his stuff, which has been absolutely just kind of excellent, uh, in regards to, you know, how his, you know, the brands he's built for himself around his calls, um, I mean, he's probably one of the most, you know, sought after call makers and stuff that, you know, are, that are available now, and really, I think that, you know, it's something to, to think about, is like, for instance, rm calls um not many people know about rm calls in the grand spectrum of things uh and whatever I, whenever i say
0: that i don't i don't mean that in any way that is like just you know I right guess. right it's not disrespectful but mr long it,
1: it, right what i'm saying is is if you were to go to if you were to come to South Louisiana, and I can guarantee I can guarantee you that 99.9% of the people you said, hey, have you ever heard of Arm Calls? They'd say, nope. They wouldn't have a clue. But they wouldn't realize that the guy that, you know, that Ron at Arm Calls makes one of the best duck calls on the planet. They're, they're, they're not going to know that. They're not going to know who Brad Samples is, you know, Brian Phillips, Josh, Rad, you know, Josh Raggio, Ken Eason, like any of those guys. They're just not... And so it's interesting because the market is so big, but it's so small at the same time. And so what you kind of, you know, you can kind of dictate in a sense, you know, really kind of how you're perceived in I guess more of a direct kind of way, if that makes any sense, um, as opposed to, you know, if you're trying to go like nationwide, like Duck Commander or something like that, um, there's a lot more kind of to it. Whereas this, you know, this side of things, the smaller callmaker side of things, I mean, it's just, it's just way more personal, you know. And I think that's a good thing. Oh yeah, I like that it's that it's that it's it's so much more personal, and it's not just cranking out calls one after another, and you know, because you're buying. Not You're buying a, a somebody's brand, but it's not a brand's name. It's somebody's personal brand. You're buying a piece of somebody, that
0: makes sense. Well, yeah, it's just like what you talked about earlier, how your clients become your friends. Whereas, you know, if you just go to Bass Pro and you pick up any, you know, Fred Zink or anything like that, that's a, a bigger name brand, you're not going to deal with them. You know you, 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 there's a few call makers that talk to fred i'm sure still but i'm pretty sure since he uh, sold his company he's living happily
1: yeah yeah i mean and, that, and look and that's honestly um there's a lot of people out there that hate on duck commander and a lot of people in south louisiana who just um you know and you kind of hear the the same old thing and it's the Man, Duck Dynasty ruined duck hunting. You know, ever since that Duck Dynasty got released, everybody in their grandma wants to be a duck hunter. Well, you know, Mm -hmm. okay, I can understand how how maybe that there's some influence that's there, but you know what? If anybody was Jensen Robertson, I'm pretty sure that they're gonna be pretty
0: happy with how their life's gone oh yeah in, in regards to that i would do it know, too if somebody wanted me to come up and advertise some tires with my call name on them absolutely i'll do it in a heartbeat a, a, exactly
1: Right that know, And it's just and it's the american and literally that whole story it's the american drink i mean phil robertson started you know uh, as far as what what we know you know as far as well, you know, we've been told, and, you know, and I, and I know, you know, just him being in my own state talking to people that have known him. I mean, you know, <laughs> had, a, had a rough, rougher life in his younger years and stuff, but literally built duck calls in a tiny little bitty shed. And now the guy has his own TV show um, and grown into this huge multi million dollar business.
0: That's the American dream. And he's really on it. And you have to think that, uh, You know, every year the hunter numbers fall. We are selling less and less hunting licenses, duck stamps, every single year. Think of how many duck stamps and licenses were bought because of Duck Commander and Duck Dynasty. Like, if anything, they help save waterfowl hunting and all the money that's going... And I know that's not going to be a popular thing to say at all, but if you realistically think about how much money that was pumped into the system and all the WMAs because... Of Duck Dynasty, realistically, they helped duck hunting, even if you don't like the next group of people that came up because of it.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're 100% right, um, which kind of leads me in that uh, I'm kind of curious to see what your take is on it. You may not really experience it or, or have to ever deal with anything like it, but uh, it's definitely huge down here as far as the, 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 the really, the, decrease in i guess i wouldn't say necessarily maybe duck numbers i would say the decrease in in good duck hunts and good hunting experiences that people have down especially where i am at Um, and the hunting just totally slacking off and a lot of people blame that on the corn
0: the hot cropping man the hot cropping
1: um you know and it's uh it's a super hot topic with people and so I'm curious to see what your take is on that. if you want to get into something controversial?
0: Yeah, man, it doesn't bother me at all. I can tell you that uh, my duck numbers in the last five years, and I'm about 800 miles north of you on the flyway. And we've seen our duck numbers f- fall on their face. And I've seen a lot of our ducks push further west because the path is changing. But I can also tell you that I hunted in a t-shirt in December more times than I can ever remember in the last... We haven't had a winter. It snowed a lot in Missouri this year, but it would be a quarter inch every other day and no accumulation, and then it would be 70 degrees on the weekends. Like, we have not got the weather, and I can tell you that a lot of guys around here are blaming states further up north. And it's like everybody from down there is blaming Missouri and Tony Vandemore and all his 10 billion acres of flooded corn everybody thinks that he has. It's To me, my take on it is that we haven't had wintertime. There's still a lot of mallards in the end of the year that are in North Dakota. I have a lot of buddies that hunt up there, and their season will be closed for three three months, and they'll still have be covered in ducks, and we'll just never even see them come. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that's, um, that's interesting, especially to hear that, you know, you've, you've got buddies up there who are, are blaming it up, you know, um, up North. Um, I can definitely tell you from our perspective and kind of something that I think a lot of people won't take into consideration, um, down here. and, And I'm the waterfowl biologist, uh, a friend of mine actually is, um, and my friends directly are. Really, really, kind of heavily involved with it. They do a lot of banding operations, and so they're always around, kind of waterfowl biologists, and we're kind of trying to approach it from really a scientific kind of way. Um, but Louisiana, like coastal Louisiana, a lot of people don't, you know, are surprised to hear this. We get no mallards. I mean, none whatsoever, zero. Absolutely, I, I make duck calls because. I I hardly ever use a duck call.
0: I would um, I would assume you guys get teal. Not to cut you off.
1: Oh yeah, no. We um so the main birds that we hunt and where I mostly hunt, it's all coastal salt and brackish marshes. Um, so we hunt the southeast part of the state. There's a bun a number of WMAs, refuges we can hunt. Um, and they're all they're all huge. It's it's very very different. Like for instance, um. One WMA that we hunt over here is called Biloxi Marsh uh, uh, Wildlife Management Area, and it's I think it's thirty three thousand acres of coastal. You know, it's all coastal prairie marsh. Is, um,
0: is that in Louisiana or is that in Mississippi?
1: No, that's in, that's in Louisiana. Biloxi. Okay. It, yeah, I know. Yeah, Biloxi, Mississippi. No, but Biloxi Marsh is it's it's decently close, but uh, but no, same same name. So it's in Louisiana. Um, but to hunt a place like that, usually it's a, you know, you're waking up at 2 a.m. or whatever it might be, You've got a 40, 50 minute boat ride sometimes where you're hunting. I mean, it's it's a lot of work to go hunt it. So it's, it's places like that that we mostly hunt, and it's all teal, gadwall, spoonies, get some widgeon. Down at the mouth of the river in Venice, it's Pintail Central, biggest bull's crags. I mean, it's insane the amount of pintails down there. So it's all pintails, teal, a lot of canvasbacks, um, kind of. It, at all. I mean, literally, it's, it's about everything that you have down at the mouth of the river in Venice, uh, other than mallards. Um, and then, you know, there's some speckle bellies, but there's also a lot of like snow geese and stuff hanging down there. But so you have that. But so that's kind of what it's like for in my area. Then you have like southwest Louisiana people are over there. Um, but really, the biggest thing is that our coastal marsh and stuff is always changing down here. People are always running mud boats and, and doing all that. But one of the biggest things is we have, like, a lot of habitat loss, uh, whether it's due to coastal erosion or we have, like, uh, hydrilla and water hyacinths down here that it's an invasive aquatic vegetation species. It's kind of somewhere like lily pads in a way.
0: Okay. Um, It is taken over, I mean, whenever I say taken over, I mean absolutely taken over
1: wetlands and places that wintered thousands and thousands of, of Birds, I'm sure sometimes millions, you know, if you were to add up all the places. Um, a really great example, you can go on uh, Warren Coco, who owns Go Devil. Uh, it's either Go Devil's Instagram page or it might be Warren Coco's personal. I don't remember. But there's a picture and there's a duck hunt. You can go back and watch this uh, with Phil Robertson and Warren Coco hunting um uh probably it was somewhere i think i'm sure like off like the blind river around manchac louisiana uh which is about an hour or so away from me and they used to just consistently kill you know it was it's going almost almost in a similar way to arkansas um flooded cypress swamps i mean just all tons of mallards and stuff and there's a video you can watch those two guys shooting widgeon and so warren took a photo of them um it's two photos in the post. One photo is from like 1990-something, and it's beautiful black water, big cypress, and you know, the blinds built up in between these cypress trees, and the photo next to it is what it is now, and it is completely covered in aquatic vegetation. So, you have know, all these birds that consistently are flying down here year after year, and, and it's places like that, it's places where I live all over, um and this is a small piece of the puzzle, but I think you can't overlook it. Birds aren't imprinting on places. You know, people like I think just expect birds to always be there. Well if you know, birds imprint on a place and they fly down there There's you know, no food. Exactly, there's there's no food and the habitat is gone. Literally they mean you know, they've been imprinting and, and coming to this place every single year over and over and over again. So you have all these mallards coming and now all of a sudden, there's no water for them to sit on because it's it's filled in with this aquatic vegetation. Um, then they're not gonna they're gonna go elsewhere, you know. Because really, the they're simple. They all they care about are they really just care about eating and staying alive and and
0: staying healthy. And yeah. that's it. Do you know? Um, um, I, I I've also heard that. Uh, Louisiana used to be just almost as big as Arkansas with rice production too, didn't they?
1: Yeah, I mean it's huge in Southwest Louisiana. It's huge. And uh, haven't
0: they lost? Like, hasn't rice production gone way down? Like, they're not not as many people are doing rice down there anymore, are they?
1: Yeah, so there used to be a sign whenever you went in the gate on. There might still – I think the sign's probably still there. I'm not sure. Hayden Richard could tell you. And there's one guy that you ought to have on this podcast. that's Hayden Richard in, in regards to Southwest Louisiana and, and Duck calling and contest calling. he uh, He's an awesome, awesome guy. Um, but he can tell you a lot about that area. And, um, yeah, I mean, I know the rice production slowed down, but there used to be a sign that, that said – It was like the world duck and goose capital, Gaydon, Louisiana. Um, Because there's that many ducks and geese over there. And there still are, don't get me wrong. Um, But it's not how it used to be. Is that saying, you know, that old saying. Um, So it's definitely changed a lot. But, yep, I don't think there's quite as many people farming over there as they used to.
0: I believe it, man. And I was just thinking, you know, that could have a huge... You know, if there's not nearly as much food, say you guys lost ten percent of your rice, and maybe you switched it up to like a uh, cotton or something like that that birds aren't using to feed on, then uh, there's you know ten percent food wise is huge. No, you know that that can make a huge difference in duck numbers and stuff like that. But that's really interesting to hear that point of view because. I always thought there was so much water that when they got spread out, it was hard. To, because, you know, I'm from up here, and we've seen our bird numbers just keep shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Ten years ago, completely different story. There were mallards everywhere. And if I'm going to shoot a duck, I've said it on podcasts recently, that 90 to 95% chance it's going to be a mallard. And uh, we get some good pushes of mallards throughout the year, maybe three or four, where it used to be like every other weekend we would have a great push of ducks and uh they would hang out for a couple days and then they'd get blown out but now we're not even getting that anymore and they're getting them all in kansas and oklahoma but uh to me i always thought it was just this uh the weather that was killing it because i know in arkansas what was it two years ago arkansas had their best season they've had in a long time this last year but before that they had the worst season they'd had in like 50 years where they didn't have any water Or anything like that And it was warm all winter Because this year we didn't even get covered up with mallards Until like the last week of season And I'm kind of off the flyway You know I'm probably 250 miles From the Missouri uh, The Mississippi River And probably 180 from the Missouri So I'm off of the flyway I'm kind of dead central between uh, Or dead centered between the central and Mississippi So we kind of get lost ducks In the first place But uh the ones that we did have we're still losing a lot of them
1: yeah i mean i think that the weather definitely is is huge it's 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 all the things man it's it's not ducks unlimited it's not oh because tennessee and mississippi you know have all the corn and they're they're just massively stockpiling corn holding all the ducks it's not that you know it's it's that that plays a part the weather plays a part lost habitat plays a part or, you know hunting pressure um i think definitely definitely plays a part i think that there's
0: absolutely birds that go nocturnal oh yeah 100 um, you know, in, in some senses they're they're going to stay safe where they can um
1: you know i know for a uh, huge thing which kind of was interesting this past year but so like for us like for instance that that wma that we have called Biloxi marsh um you know, WMA. So to get there you can only access it by boat. So typically like I said you get up at two AM, you you know, drive down there, you launch and stuff and you know it's, 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 a, it's a very involved hunt. You know, it's very long. It's I gotta get up at two AM at least from where I live. But um you run out there and you set up and stuff and you know you can't have any permanent blinds or anything. you just go wherever you want. Thirty three thousand acres. If you can access it by boat you can hunt it. Um and so we'll go down there and we'll go do that. Well so last year we kind of had, I, I had noticed something because every time we'd hunt out there, you'd have these big groups, 20, 30, you know, gather on stuff come flying over and everybody hunker down while they're going to land and they'd, they'd be cupped up like they're going to come in and then they'd fly right over the top of us and head straight, you know, three 400 yards away and just dump in the middle of the marsh. We'd be like, man, where are they going? You know? and um we pull up a sat image and sure enough you know on all next maps or something and there's a little pothole in the middle of the marsh landmark pond i mean you can't access it by boat or anything like that you'd have to park a boat you have to walk two three hundred yards through the marsh to go get to it that's where they go so we're like man yeah, that's interesting Our but not necessarily parked near us or anything you know it's just you know we're all hidden real good you know but we got a big decoy spread out all that stuff and So then last year, I was like, you know what? I was like, we ought to consider changing it up rather than us party hunt. You know, how about I'm going to go drop off you here. I'm going to drop off you here. And everybody's going to take six decoys. And everybody's going to walk to a landlocked pond in the middle of the marsh. And we're going to see how much of a difference it makes. And We only did it twice last year. Um, But I noticed the biggest thing. You go out there and you go hunt by yourself with six decoys, and every single duck that we killed was at ten yards, and they did not think twice about dumping into there. Just, I mean, it was it was crazy um, how close that they get, and they just wouldn't think about it because they felt that secure and that
0: safe. Yeah, they just didn't see anything, you know. See that? And so, right? And so, I tell my buddies and I say, think about it from their
1: perspective. You know the season kicks off, there's people running boats all over, not just people who duck hunt, but people who are also fishing, because it's huge saltwater trout redfish spot up there, I mean, absolutely huge, you can get down duck hunting, a lot of people do, then they go catch a limited spec trout redfish right after um, but these ducks are looking down, they're seeing boats all over the place, and they're constantly seeing the same old group of guys with, you know, the bamboo blinds, cane blinds and a big decoy spread a pile here and a pile there and they see it all over the place and they get smart. And so I think, you know, just that amount of hunting pressure, it educates the ducks. And then it also really kind of, you know, puts, it gives them so much anxiety to where they're not going to go even land in places that they know are accessible by boat. Um, and that's why they flock to, I think, these landlocked ponds. And it's not a matter of food, necessarily, because it's funny. A lot of the ponds that are landlocked are, are deep. They're two-foot deep, you know, three-foot deep in the middle and the marsh, so we're completely surrounded by, you know, land. And, um, you know, it's too deep for, for puddle ducks to, to eat or anything. Um, you know, they're going to need a, a lot shallower, you know, a foot, a foot or so, a foot and a half, depending on the, what they're feeding on. But... So they're just going. They're just going to go loaf to rest and get away from things. And you know, so we did it this past year, and it was a lot of fun. Um, they didn't think twice about it. So,
0: well, yeah, uh, it's a cool, a just cool it's just changing up your tactics, man. Yep. We um, uh, yeah. we'll get a lot of stale birds around here. What we've done because you know, just like you know, you guys, you're at the bottom of the flyway. Those ducks down there have seen everything, every setup is uh we've quit running a lot of duck decoys um and we'll switch it up to running honker decoys mainly and uh the ducks land with honkers like nobody's business honkers not going to land with a duck you know a set of duck decoys but freaking ducks will just pile into honker decoys i you said you could get some specs and stuff down there in southwest louisiana we do if you want to talk to anybody about spec hunting spec calling it's hayden richard okay well i was just Jeez. thinking was maybe you could like try if you had any silhouettes or anything like that of specs maybe throw out like six of those and like one duck decoy and maybe yeah. they're like hey this is weird i don't know why you know and feel super comfortable i don't just thinking yeah, outside the box we...
1: no absolutely but Marshall I was telling you about there's a lot of snow geese out there um that'll they kind of live out there for the year uh which is is kind of interesting um but n- every now and again you'll hear a speck or maybe see one but all the
0: speckle belly geese are in southwest Louisiana so um, southwest if, northeast
1: Louisiana where there's agricultural
0: fields well um, I definitely know the ducks will mix in with the uh, the snows because you know Missouri we got a big huge staging ground for that maybe if you threw out a couple of Snow silhouettes, or something like that, not like a crazy like bag full of them, but a no, couple we, of them. Yeah. I bet you'd shoot the crap out of pintails like that,
1: yeah, no we um you know we definitely have thought about buying some floaters, um just to throw four floaters one, so we can kill some snowgiees because it there they're pretty dumb um. 'Cause out there in the middle of the marsh they're not concentrated. They well I say this, they are in certain areas, they'll burn the marsh and they really, really get sick. There'll be a couple, you know, hundred or, you know, to a thousand or so that'll sit out there on that. Um but for the most part the snow geese will kinda just pair off by themselves. You might see a group of like twenty maybe. And they'll fly low. I mean, and you can call them with your mouth. You, know, you can just just literally mouth
0: call. Yeah, them. just do that little bark. And they'll
1: come. <laughs> they'll come right to you, especially if it's like a single or you know, you know, a pair or something like that. Um, but you know, no doubt if you know we thought about doing it, we just kind of haven't. You know, just we we blush and March was insanely good. Not last year, not the year three years ago. It was insane how good it was. Um, In these past two years, it's really slacked off. Matter of fact, this past year, I hunted a youth refuge uh, with some kids
0: the majority of the year, and we had a blast doing that. That was awesome. Nice. See, that was kind of another one of my questions was, with all the flooding on the Missouri River this year, you know, it flooded out horribly. Vandemore is posting videos every day of putting more and more sandbags out. And I think as a country we lost like 40 percent of our corn production and a lot of guys threw in like uh millet and stuff like that super late just to put something in the ground so if it was still bad that far south this year the corn thing it it just is like another check against it being like the main cause to me oh no absolutely because
1: i remember before the season we were all like Oh man, you know what?
0: You know, not up that. It's a good thing that people are out of jobs and no, but are, as know, far as duck road. hunting, but, yeah, like you it's know, it, be game like, on. it might actually help us out. You know,
1: of course, yeah, because the lack of food and you know, not necessarily. You know, I mean, we we kill birds. You know. We had a, I mean, we had a really good season. Um, I mean, I can't hunt a sixty-day season or anything like that. i may maybe hunting like twenty to twenty-five days out of the season. Um, you know, pretty much relegated just to the to the weekends and then holidays, of course. Um, but we, no, we had a, a pretty good year. Like I said, we we take the kids out and hunted. You know, the refuge with them a pretty good bit, and we just got into a lot of found a lot of widgeon hanging out and um that was a real treat we don't get that many wedging down here and uh made a couple hunts you know down at the mouth of the river and stuff which is pretty cool but no it wasn't all that bad but definitely wasn't like it used to be that's for sure
0: yeah yeah we definitely need some cold cold winters to get it back
1: yep no no doubt but um well look i am, i know for sure my uh my woman's
0: <laughs> waiting ready, on you
1: Ready? she's ready for me to get off the, the phone we're supposed to start a new netflix uh series so well uh
0: yeah <laughs> man it's
1: like we're gonna start up vikings but uh
0: oh you gotta get on that that's a great show yeah it's yep, so yes. awesome Yeah, that's what i've heard but uh, <laughs> man thank you so much for having me on the podcast it's,
1: it's been really cool getting to talk to you and and kind of getting really kind of getting to know you you know we Message and, and talks back and forth online and, and stuff before and uh you know it's kind of like one of those things where it, it just, it'd be nice just to kind of get to, to know those people you interact with on a daily basis and all so nice no, uh really appreciate it man really enjoyed it
0: hey man i appreciate you giving me some time on this late uh, late sunday evening and let you go inside and get some vikings going on and we'll have to do it again i'll hit you up uh hit you up and we'll do it again at some point yeah
1: dude absolutely um i will be talking to you later and uh thanks again keep you know keep it up and i'll make sure to you know try and try and share this uh this podcast as much as i can and you know get your your viewership up and uh get this thing going
0: hey man i really appreciate it and uh when you get ready to keep churning out more calls where can where can anybody get a hold of you i know you're not wanting to do a big waiting list or anything like that but uh you know if somebody wanted to grab a call or just chat with you about calls
1: yeah absolutely um so you can always uh get in touch with me on facebook that's probably the main place i have my t hall calls facebook page i don't necessarily post that much to it i probably should start posting a bunch more um but my instagram is probably a little bit more active i post on there uh, a lot more and so my Instagram is at t.hall underscore calls and then uh, Facebook either message me you know Tyler Hall or uh, contact me on my T Hall calls Facebook page
0: awesome man well I, uh, I like I said I really appreciate you giving me some time to do it and this is one that we've been needing to do for a long time we've kind of talked about it for a while so and we need to do that trade call that's for dang sure yeah, yeah no, <laughs> we'll, we'll touch base with it man alright brother Thanks again. I'll be talking to you later. All right, man. Have a good night. Yep.
1: Bye-bye.
0: Bye. All right, guys. Thanks for hanging out with us. And uh, if you're still with us, um, that was Tyler Hall out of t Calls. He's down in South Louisiana, down in good food country where they got crawfish and reds and all that good stuff. And, man, I love it down there. That's just one of my favorite areas. Um, like I said, we're finally on the iTunes on BTBN. Um, go on there and leave us a review and write uh, the duck call under the review. We're doing that uh, That Buckeye Burrow call I'm going to give away. I don't know when it's going to be, but here not too long. I want to give you guys a few episodes to check it out and listen. But uh, I really appreciate your time, and thank you guys for listening to this and sharing it and I hope you're all enjoying all these different call makers. It's a uh, a lot of fun to hear how everybody starts and hear the way that everybody goes about it. So thanks for listening and uh, have a good one, fellas.